Groups are where a large church gets small, right? It's where we get to know one another and lift up one another's burdens and hear the Spirit speak through us or through other people to us. I want to encourage you, just add my amen to that. Now, before we pray, there's a couple things I, I, I want to mention. First, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is when churches here in the United States, churches around the world, uh, come together uh, to mourn and stand against abortion. In the state of Illinois now recently, full-term abortion. Martin Luther King Day is a day when churches and our culture at large come together to mourn and stand against racism. But we are followers of Christ. So we don't just stand against, we stand for. We stand for life, the dignity of all of human life, from the moment of conception to our final breath. Because we as believers in Christ affirm the biblical teaching that we have all been made in the image of God and therefore human life is fundamentally sacred. It's an image of God thing. We we bear the mark of the maker. His brand, if you will. We are all made in his image. And so what that means is the African-American two-year-old the four-year-old Hispanic little girl by the name of Luna that are foster children in my daughter's home, my Anglo daughter's home in California, Uh, the baby in the womb of another daughter of mine in Denver, our Shine ministry uh, here at Wheaton Bible Church for children of special needs, the wonderful and increasing ethnic diversity we are experiencing here on Wheaton Bible Church has been a a slow change as we relocated to North Avenue, as well as a diversity all around the world. This beautiful diversity is all a reflection of humanity made in the image of God. So today we are burdened by racism. We are burdened by abortion. We stand for life. But because we are followers of Christ, we affirm that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, uh, there is transformation, and there is hope. And having said that, would you now bow with me And let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we marvel that you are infinite in your goodness, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your holiness. And yet we confess to you that we have been unfaithful to you. that we have murdered babies, we have trafficked children, we have abused women, we have treated people who are different than us with disdain, we have denied 
that humans are made in your image. So, Father, I would ask that today that you would forgive us for unjust laws, for continually and repeatedly and increasingly so rejecting you as our authority and placing our preferences, our desires on our, the throne. Forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for our indifference, for our abortion, for our racism. Ultimately, God, we ask that you would forgive the United States for our lack of love. For our lack of love here in the church of Jesus Christ throughout our country. And we ask, who are we that you would send your son? We marvel at a savior who came to earth and died in our place for our sin. That we might find forgiveness, that we might find this precious hope. That you might, by your spirit, give us wisdom and discernment and love. We ask, God, that you would enable us by the power and the presence of your spirit to live as light as Jesus is the light of the world. Give us the ability to both live truth and live love. And we pray, God, for these issues of our culture, these issues of our day, these tragedies in particular. And we commit them to you and we ask that you would work and that you would start with us, your people. And all God's people said, amen. As we take our offering, I'd like to sing a couple of songs that speak of God's love for all people, as Pastor Rob was sharing, and our desire to reflect that love. So let's sing together, and ushers, you can come forward.
Well, good morning. This is week number three in our series on spiritual war. It's a series about all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ to enable us, to empower us to overcome the attacks of the devil. Now, that's a big deal according to the New Testament because Peter tells us that the devil rolls, that he roams around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Now, I feel like I need to say, and I will say, hey, hold on, wait a minute. I mean, to assert the existence, the reality of the devil today in our secular context is sort of like asserting the earth is flat, right? It, it, it seems odd to us. Because we live in a modern Western world that has become increasingly secular, increasingly convinced that God doesn't exist, therefore the devil certainly couldn't exist, and therefore our problems, and really this is a series about our problems, all have natural explanations, natural causes, psychological, sociological, medical, uh, genetic factors. So we no longer talk about evil being rooted in the supernatural, or our problems even being rooted in evil. Instead, today we use you know, terms like dysfunction, deviant, ignorance, pathology. But these modern notions, these modern descriptors, fail us in the face of modern atrocities. I mean, after all, in 1930 and 1940, wasn't Germany the most sophisticated, arguably the most educated country in the world as they begin to gas millions of Jews and test different poisons on children? Is terrorism ignorance? School shootings? Sex trafficking? Now this is where the Bible really helps us because the Bible doesn't have this problem. The Bible tells us that evil is real, evil exists, and evil is multidimensional. Uh, coming at us from the world, the flesh, our own flesh, and the devil. From outside us, from inside us, and above us. Now I say all this because I know as we go through this spiritual war series that talking about the devil may seem odd, uh, different to many of you because of the culture we live in. And uh, we all... Uh, we all are formed and shaped in certain degrees by our culture. So when we talk about this, it's like, okay, now wait a minute, wait a minute, I, uh, hold on. Because you may be the only person in your neighborhood that affirms the existence of evil. But I also want to say to you, and the reason I'm talking about culture is we get into this, 
that one of the biggest failures of modern secularism, humanism, the assertion that God doesn't exist, is that secularism has no categories, no answers for evil. And so you may not, may not buy the biblical doctrine of supernatural forces of evil, but I want to tell you, therefore, you have no explanation for what's happening around us. And so it's imperative in the day and age we live that we look at God's word, that our thinking, our lives be shaped with God's word. And to this end, I want to return to our passage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to go back to the first verse in this section. And out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as I read beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces, and here's the word, of evil. In the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes. Now that could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be the last days. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And the breastplate of righteousness in place. You may be seated. Now, to the, this morning, what I want to do is I want to eventually get to verse 14 and focus on these first two uh, pieces of armor we find in our uh, passage. But to get there, I want to set the stage by spending a few minutes in verse 11. And I want you to notice three terms, uh, uh, three different clusters of terms or ter uh, a term in particular in verse 11. So let's put verse 11 up. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now let me start with the full armor of God. The armor of God in this passage is a metaphor. And it's a, a metaphor, and all commentators are in agreement on this, for all the benefits and blessings and privileges that we as believers have in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection for us. Now notice the verb, the first word. Put on the full armor of God. Putting on the armor of God is applying the blessings of Christ. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins this book by telling us we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Putting on the armor is applying the blessings of Christ to every area of your life, including your problems. Maybe especially your problems. And now let's look at the, the final word in verse 14, schemes. 
Schemes is the Greek word methodias. It's the Greek word we get our English word method from. Someone once said that Satan's primary method isn't to make good people bad, but to make flawed people worse. By aggravating our weak spots, our vulnerabilities, by deepening our patterns of sin. So let me illustrate this uh, uh, biblically. I'm going to reference a lot of passages uh, today. If you go back two chapters in Ephesians to Ephesians chapter Paul 4, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, be angry and do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, maybe you've read that over and over, but have you made the connection between your anger and Satan gaining a foothold in your life? What Paul seems to be saying is if you have an anger problem, Satan's going to aggravate it. Intensify it. Paul says essentially the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where instead of talking about anger, he's talking about unforgiveness. And he tells us that if you, are an I, if you and I are not forgiving, if we're unforgiving, if we harbor bitterness, Satan will outwit you because one of his schemes, and Paul uses the word schemes there, is to take your unforgiveness, take your bitterness, and deepen it and make it permanent. Because he wants to use it to crush you, to crush other people around you. He will aggravate it. It's like he's pulling on the strings. And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says essentially the same thing about pride, about conceit. He's talking about spiritual leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3, elders and deacons. And he says, do not appoint a new convert to those roles lest he become conceited and fall into the trap of the devil. Uh, Satan is waiting in the shadows. To take your pride and, and to make it a, a greater and greater overinflated view of yourself in order to blind you. Jesus tells us Satan is the father of lies. And so he primarily comes at us not to possess us, but to deceive us. As I've said, he's not out so much to plant or to leave fang marks in your flesh, but to plant lies in your heart. Lies that exploit, that stimulate, that aggravate your weaknesses, your idols, your flaws, your sins. Now I say all that, 
And here I am narrowing my focus because these schemes, these methods, remember the word at the end of verse 11, take two primary forms, it seems. Temptation and accusation. So others point out, and here we can go to this slide, that Satan in temptation is trying to get you to embrace a too high view of yourself. Why? So you will say, well, I deserve this. On the other hand, when it comes to accusation, Satan is pressing you to adopt a, a too low view of yourself. So you end up saying, I'm worthless. You see, in temptation, Satan hides God's love. No, I, I'm sorry. In temptation, Satan hides God's holiness, and he plays up, magnifies God's love. So you, in your pride, will say, it's okay, God will forgive me, or I deserve this, like I said a moment ago. But in accusation, it's just the opposite. Satan hides God's love, plays up God's holiness to convince you that all of this is your fault. That God may love the world, but, you know, God doesn't really love me. Look what I've just done. So now the question I want to wrestle with the rest of our time together is what do we do about these lies, temptation, accusations, which are often so very subtle that some, we're not even aware they're going on. And Paul's answer is found beginning in verse 14 through verse 17 when he gives us six specific pieces of armor to put on. And as I said, I want to look at the first two found in verse 14. So let's look at verse 14 again. I want you to see these two. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. So let's start with the belt of truth. The belt... Uh, 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 that soldiers put on was usually a, a, a large, it was a wide uh, belt that went around a soldier's waist, often to keep his robes in place. Now, because these pieces, pieces of armor are metaphors for our spiritual resources in Christ, Paul tells us the belt is a belt of truth which refers to you and I as believers in Christ standing on, basing our life on, standing behind, if you will, the authoritative truth of God's word. So in other words, if you're a person, you're a church attender, and you say, you know, I believe parts of the Bible, but certain parts of the Bible, uh, no, not so much. Or if uh, you're a person that says, you know, the Bible's a, a good book, a, a helpful book, uh, but you never open your Bible, you never uh, read your Bible, you're not putting on the belt of truth. Now what's interesting is, of all these six pieces, it's the belt of truth that comes first, telling us 
that the primary way we protect ourselves against the attacks of, I would say, the world, flesh, and the devil, certainly here the devil, is by putting this belt of truth on. Understanding that the Bible is my foundation, the Bible is my rock, the Bible is my light, uh, the Bible is my uh, sword, as we'll talk about later. It means you are a man or, or, or woman that lets the Bible do surgery on your soul. Then when it comes to the priorities and value in your life, the Bible isn't on a low shelf, it's on the top shelf. That you don't just page through the Bible, you allow the Bible to page through you. And there's a big difference. Now, you may not be a reader, but to put on the belt of truth, you read the Bible. Because you know it's in the Bible that God speaks to you. Now, let me take this, uh, putting on this belt of truth a step further. Not only does it mean we believe in the objective reality of the truth of God's word, it means we apply that and we experience that uh, subjectively. So what does putting on the belt of truth means? Well, you believe in the objective reality of God's word, but you press that reality into your heart, into your soul, into your life. And you subjectively submit to the Bible daily just as a soldier daily submits to his commanding officer's orders. Now, let me apply this to temptation. Now, look at this. Pressing the truth of the Bible into your heart is your primary defense against temptation. So now we're talking about temptation again. As others have done before me when they preach on this passage, I too am going back to a wonderful book on this subject from the 1600s, by, uh, written by a Puritan preacher, a Cambridge graduate by the name of Thomas Brooks. And in that book, he lists temptation after temptation, accusation after accusation. I want to mention three of Thomas Brooks' accusations, temptations first. Temptation number one, Satan will show you the bait, but hide the hook. He'll show you the golden cup, as Brooks says, but he'll hide the poison. This is Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve. You will surely not die. So he offered the fruit, but hid the loss of paradise. You see, Satan wants you to focus on short-term pleasures not long-term miseries that are the result of your sin. Now, we have a wonderful illustration of this in the Old Testament. It's actually the difference uh, between Joseph and David in the face of sexual temptation. Both of these guys knew God. Both of these guys believed in God and, and loved God. But when Joseph faced sexual temptation, he took the long-term view 
saying, how could I do this wicked? Here we're back to evil, evil thing. And sin against God. Joseph went long-term. He went vertical. David, however, took the short-term view, and instead of focusing on God, he focused on his feelings and capitulated to his feelings. It was short-term. After seeing Bathsheba and told his servants, hey, go get her right now. Bring her to me right now. So what is putting on the armor of God? In these situations, and sexual temptation, different forms of temptation, uh, putting on the belt of truth is what Joseph did. And he focused on God. But if you live your life focused on your sinful feelings, every moment you do that, you're taking off the belt of truth. So we have this choice. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Am I going to capitulate to my desires? And doing so, I took off the belt of truth. Or am I going to put on the belt of truth and I'm going to trust God and obey God? And that's your choice in temptation. Temptation number two. Satan will paint sin with virtue's colors. Tim Keller talks about this and he uh, talks about one of Satan's chief plots when it comes to temptation is to get you to rationalize your sin as virtue. Oh, you don't have an anger problem. You're just stressed. You're not an alcoholic. You're just sociable. You're not proud. You're just better. So we go back to Israel's very first king, King Saul, a guy who had all the potential in the world, we're told. And Samuel the prophet, the godly prophet, speaking for God, came to Saul uh, in between battles when there was a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And in order to bring God into the battle, Samuel said, we're going to make an offering we're going to make some sacrifices, Saul, but I've got to go away for a little bit. And under no circumstances are you to make those offerings. You're the king, I'm the prophet, wait till I come. Saul didn't. By the way, Saul ended up one of the suicides in the Bible. And beginning with this disobedience, which I'm about to describe, everything started to go south for Saul. And so Saul, impatient, and the whole armies and the, or the people are under great stress, and what the text tells us they're, they're fearful and they're uncertain as they're battling the Philistines. Saul says, okay, I'm going to do it, and he does it. And a short time later, Samuel the prophet shows up. What have you done, Saul? And Saul says to him, well, I went ahead and offered the sacrifices for the good of the people. He colored his sin as virtue. Man, don't do that. Putting on the belt of truth means you continually tell yourself, I'm in Romans chapter 8, if I live according to the flesh, I die. But if by the Spirit I put to death the misdeeds of the body, I will live. First Chronicles chapter 10 tells us Saul died, and I'm quoting the verse, verse 13. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not obey the word of the Lord. And he did not inquire of the Lord. 
Putting on the belt of truth means you do not downplay your sin. Now, I'll come back to that. We don't want to magnify it. So temptation number three, and then we'll move on to accusation. Satan will make you bitter about your sufferings. He will mess with your self-talk. You know, this ongoing conversation we have with ourselves and our heart and our minds, our, our thoughts, and what Satan will do is plant thoughts and move into your self-talk and whisper things that just aren't true, things that are lies. So you're suffering, and, and Satan will say, you know, God doesn't really care. Look what you're going through. Uh, none of your friends are going through this. Uh, you don't deserve this. I mean, wasn't it Satan? It certainly wasn't God who perhaps nudged Job's wife after they lost everything to tell Job, curse God and die? Now, I lost my first wife when she was 50, but that thought never uh, occurred to me to curse God. We as followers of Christ, with the benefit of the Spirit of God living in us, we say no to that. So there were some passages in that moment of suffering and agony and tragedy and loss that I went to. One of them uh, is from one of the Psalms. The Lord has established His throne in the heavenlies, and His sovereignty rules over all. Not a few things. Not just good things, good and bad things. He knows every hair on my head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, he's named every single star. God's sovereignty rules over all. The Lord has established his throne in the heavenlies. His sovereignty rules over all. Romans chapter 8. And we know, Rob, that God works all things together for good. He's going to work this uh, loss together for good in your life. And you know what you're doing in those moments with God's word? As you press it into your life, You're talking yourself out of a dangerous funk. You're talking yourself out of bitterness. And the word of God in those moments isn't just a theoretical thing. It's an existential, experiential thing. So let's go on. Let's look at verse 14 again. Notice at the end of verse 14, Paul introduces the breastplate of righteousness. Tells us to put it in place. Now, this breastplate, where the belt covered uh, the gut, the breastplate covers, obviously, the chest, the heart. Uh, Vitally important. Uh, Sometimes it was made of leather, or sometimes it had metal, or, or had a mix. So now we're moving to the armor of truth, to the armor of identity, I just want you to get those two words, the armor of truth to the armor of identity. Because righteousness here, it's a breastplate of righteousness, doesn't refer to the good things you do. I mean, Satan laughs at that. He knows our sinful heart. He knows that everything we do usually is a mixed bag of motives. So the righteousness here refers to the righteousness that you are given in Jesus Christ, the moment you believe. Now turn the page and look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. And Paul says, and be found in him that is found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, 
Not the things I do that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the reality that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived a perfect life. Every second of his life, he loved his neighbor as himself. Every second of his life, he loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. Uh, there was never a moment when Jesus was greedy or covetous or, or, or lusting. He lived the life you and I can't live because of our sin so that the moment we believe our sin is transferred to Christ, he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins, and Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. We call that the great exchange. Jesus gets my sin, I get Jesus' righteousness. So from the moment we believe, we are forever seen as righteous and acceptable in God's sight. So you, as the New Testament talks about a lot, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I have this union, this shared life with Jesus Christ. I have a new identity, nature, righteousness. So to put on the breastplate of righteousness here is to claim your new identity and to cling to it. So you tell yourself over and over, I'm in Christ. Christ is in me, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here's my point. Clinging to your new identity is your primary defense against Satan's accusations. And now we're moving from temptation to accusations. Let me mention two, accusation number one. Satan wants to focus you on your sin, not the Savior. He wants to focus you on your sin, not the Savior. He wants to do anything he can to get your eyes off of Jesus. So when you come to say, succumb rather, uh, you succumb to lust or greed or to pride, And it's a repeated occurrence in your life, as certain sins are in all of our lives. And you begin to feel hopeless. I'll come back to that in a moment. I want you to understand, in those moments, you are being accused by Satan. So putting on the breastplate of righteousness means that you tell yourself, yes, in life, I will trip, stumble, and fall. I, I, I will say bad things. I will do bad things. And I will continually confess them. But you don't stop there. You go on and say, uh, and you say this to yourself, you say this to the enemy, uh, but because Jesus Christ was tortured for me on the cross, I'm not going to torture myself anymore. Because he was punished for my guilt, I'm not going to punish myself. And you talk over and over to yourself about Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. When you're feeling guilty, you're feeling accused. And therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Satan will do everything he can to jump on your sin and you will sin. To make you feel terrible. And in those moments you put on this breastplate of righteousness. And you claim your union, your identity, your righteousness in Christ. Accusation number two. 
Satan will work overtime to rob you of hope. He will try to convince you. Now, this could be the result of sin. It could have nothing to do with sin, that you can't change, or he can't change, or she can't change, or, or your kid will never change, or your job's never going to change, your situations is never uh, uh, going to change, and uh, you're never going to shake your past, and he's never going to shake his past, and she's never going to shake her past, and all of a sudden you end up discouraged, and you have this sense of spiritual hopelessness, and you, you wonder, what is all this about? You are being accused. Evil exists and evil is real, and it comes from above us. So I want to tell you a story, just a quick little story. It goes back to a totally different era, an era when a bill collector came to a woman, a wife, and said, I want payment, and the wife was unfazed, unrattled. And she simply said, well, if you need anything, go to my husband. Now, do you see that's what we as believers in Jesus Christ do. That's what we say. If I owe you anything, Satan, go to Christ. He paid my debts. I owe you nothing. I am secure, accepted, and loved in Jesus Christ. Jesus carries me in his arms, and I know this because he died for me. So friends, I'm saying two things this morning and I'm done. Grab your Bible and never let it go. Press it into your life. And the Bible says you will stand against Satan's temptations. Understand your righteousness, your identity in Jesus Christ. And cling to that. And you will not only find hope, you will stand against Satan's accusations. You see, it's not what we must do, it's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we fix our eyes on him. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, this holistic, sophisticated way the Bible approaches our problems. And we ask that you would use your word to speak to us, that we would be people that cling to the Bible and cling to our identity. And I pray in Jesus' marvelous name, amen.